Welcome to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, where the conversation always gives you a foundation that is built on biblical principles, so you can intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, and the reality we live in, and history. Host Joe Gaona covers topics like apologetics, worldviews, contemporary culture, and the Word of God to help you articulate a defense for how you live your Christian life. See how you can get involved in support Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics by visiting ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com That's ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com Joe, where is that magnifying glass? How you doing today? This is Joe Guiana with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And we're here to intellectually think about worldviews. And do they make sense? Does your worldview make sense? Does mine make sense when we weigh it out with truth? And on this scale of truth, we want to put history, archaeology, science, philosophy theology and the reality that we live in and weigh it all out to see if your worldview can stand scrutiny to what it believes on from the bottom up. So let's get started. This week we are going to talk about how the Bible got started. How did we get our Bibles? How did we get our translations? So we're going to start from the very beginning when Jesus ascended into heaven. And it was in 35 AD that we know that Thomas would begin, the doubting Thomas that we know about, begins to spread Christianity. And he goes to Persia and he travels through Ethiopia and India as he spreads the gospel message. Now, as Paul begins to preach by 45 AD, he begins his first missionary trip to spread Christianity. We know in 49 AD that Claudius expels Jews from Rome. Claudius the emperor. This included Christians and Jews because at that point, Christians were technically not separated from the Jewish religion. By 54 AD, we have the emperor Nero, and he was the first Roman official to really begin to persecute Christianity. You know, we hear of the story of how Rome burned down while he was fiddling on the roof. We know by 64 AD, the crucifixion of Peter happened. The story tells us that as he was being crucified, that Peter wanted to be crucified upside down because he did not think that he was worthy to die like Jesus. And so Paul, he was beheaded by 67 AD after spending much time in the Roman prison writing most of the epistles that we have of the Bible. 
And so we get to 69 AD, and by this time, Vespasian was proclaimed emperor of Rome. Now, by 69 AD, a lot of stuff has been going on. You see, back three or four years in 66 AD, the Roman governor of Floris, he actually sent troops to remove talents from the temple treasury of the Jewish temple, which started this war that began to take place. As he went in there to take that money, we are told that there was 3,600 citizens of the Israelites, of the Jewish community that were massacred by Floris. And this touched off an explosion of rebellion, and here, really, the revolt began. The emperor, he had sent Vespasian to meet the Jewish forces and endeavor to push the majority of the rebels into Jerusalem And as they got him into Jerusalem, it was Titus by 70 AD as he surrounded Jerusalem and brought the temple to a halt. By 70 AD, he besieged Jerusalem and the temple. It was a five-month waiting period as he would finally bring down Jerusalem. As we go further, we find that by 50 to 95 AD, the last apostle that was living, that of the original apostles, that the gospels already had been written, the epistles have been written, and pretty much the Bible had been canonized for us Christians. Now, by 100, 105 AD, the Didache was found, which was like a church manual for the church community. And after the last apostle, we know that he had a student named Polycarp. This is around 110 AD. Polycarp had friends like Papias and Ignatius who knew about Polycarp hearing from the apostle John, was one of his students. And we know that Ignatius, he wrote about the Gospel of Matthew, among many things. Papias, he wrote about Matthew and Mark as authors of the Gospel. And we can see, even as we begin to canonize the Bible in the first century, that there was already a lot of heretics and heresies going on within the church. And this is why John wrote his letter, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. It was for Gnosticism. He wanted to let the Christians know that there was not some kind of mysterious or some kind of knowledge that you can get that other people couldn't get. That somehow you were more spiritual than some other Christians were. And It even went further with this Gnosticism that taught that the material world was unreal or that the physical world was not good. It was actually evil and that you were waiting for that spirit 
spirit life, that you would get a new life in the spirit, and the physical body did not matter. Well, John went against this, and he wanted us to make sure we understood that Jesus came in the flesh, and if you denied that, that you were not a Christian, that you were not following the doctrines, that you were a heretic. And so we see much heresy uh, going around as now the Christians are having to define who they are, what they believe in, because heretics are coming from every corner of the land. By 140 AD, there was Valentinus. He was a Gnostic, and he taught in Rome on his views of Gnosticism. And even with Valentinus, the spreading of Gnosticism was becoming huge in the community. And so the Christians found themselves having to write against that. And then you had things like Marcinian, the Marcinians who rejected the Hebrew God of the Bible, that they didn't believe in this wrathful Hebrew God. And so they wanted just to talk about the Jesus, the love God, the God of Agape, the God of love. This was rejected by Christendom. We're told by Polycarp, he sees Marcion, and when he met him on this occasion, he says, Dost thou know me? And he goes, I do know thee, the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> Can you imagine talking in this tone to Marcion? Because he knew he was rejecting the Hebrew God was rejecting all Christianity. And so he calls him out as the firstborn of Satan. Around 157 AD, we begin to see Montanus. Montanus was a group of people who began to say that they had this Paracletus, that they could speak for the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit was using them to speak. And of course, he had two women that were with them, who was Prisca and Maximilla. Now, Prisca and Maximilla with Montanus would find themselves when they're speaking about the things of God, that they would begin to be ecstatic when they would talk, begin to go in convulsions, begin to shake. And Christianity had to refute this and say, no, this is not part of Christendom. And so we begin to see other people reject that Jesus was God. They begin to say that he was uh, created the Arian, the Arianism began to say that Jesus was a created being. We can see more and more the Christendom had to come out and defend themselves of the Christian faith and bring definitions down so we know what we believe in and what our essentials were. By 150 AD, and can I just say this? That you can look today with the oneness Pentecostal, with the Bethel movement that's out there, um, with them hitting the ground, going in statics, and thinking that when they're uh, mumbling stuff and bouncing all around, that God is speaking through them and that they're a special kind of prophets, special kind of people. Well, um, one heir begets another heir, and we see it even in our 21st century, that all these heirs in the 1st and 2nd century of Christendom, 
is here today and we're still fighting as they would quiet down and then all of a sudden they'd come up powerfully again. We're always finding ourselves fighting against these heresies, fighting against these dogmas. By 150 AD, Justin Martyr calls the Gospels the Memras of the Apostles. And then we get the Diatosserum, was the harmony of the four Gospels that was published by Tatian. Now, was it an exact copy of the four Gospels? No, but it was nevertheless by 165, 180 AD, we can say that there was this diatosserum of the four Gospels that was used throughout the community. By 175 AD, 200, we have the Meritorium, which had the 22 of the 27 books. So by 175 AD, that's 75 years after the last apostle, we find a list of this Meritorium fragment that had a list of 22 of the 27 books that we use today. Then we have Irenaeus by 180 AD. And we find when Irenaeus in his writings that he talks about the origin of the four Gospels that their authors are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Stay with us. This is 1530 Apologetics as we go into the second part of how we got the Bible and its translations. Don't go away because there is much more to come with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. Welcome back to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. And now, here's your host, Joe Gaona on K-Praise. I'm glad you could be with us for the second part of our talk about how we got the Bible and its translation, but we're starting from 30 AD after the ascension of Jesus Christ. We find in one of Irenaeus' writings, as he writes against heresy, he says, I do this in order that thou, obtaining an acquaintance with these things, mayest in turn explain them to all those with whom they are connected, and exhort them to avoid such an abyss of madness and of blasphemy against Christ. I intend then, to the best of my ability, with brevity and clearness, to set forth the opinions of those who are now propagating heresy. I refer especially to the disciples of Ptolemaeus, whose school may be described as a bud from that of Valentinus, the Gnostic. By 200 AD, we find Tertullian, as he quotes the gospel, that he also fights against modalism and sabellianism, which is saying that there was just one God. It was like the oneness Pentecostal. There's just one God and that he manifest himself or he emanated himself as Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but it was just God the Father all this time. And so we find Tertullian having to refute that by 200 AD. So a lot is going on before we actually get to the Vulgate 
of the Bible. Many other manuscripts, many other uh, Greek manuscripts were being passed around, but the influence now is not so much Greek, but it's becoming a Latin-speaking world. And it's here that we find that Latin is now becoming the main focus of the language uh, within Rome and Europe and the communities abroad. And one of the books that they were using was called the Vetus Latina, the Old Latin Bible. And this was around 200 AD. Now, we have no extents from it, but we are told that it came more than likely from North Africa, as that was the Latin-speaking language that was more predominant during that time. So we do see by 200 AD, although we had this Vitus Latina Bible, who had the Old Testament and the New Testament in it, that there was still people saying, Christians, theologians, who were saying that some of the translations didn't seem right, didn't seem to fit. And so this was up in the air. So by 300 AD, we have what we call the Great Persecution, where the emperor Diocletian was infuriated with the Christians because, again, they would not perform the sacrifices to the Roman gods. And so we know in history that this was one of the greatest persecutions that the Christian faith had. And during this persecution, mind you, not only was there martyrdom of killing Christians, but they were also taking the manuscripts and uh, burning them and getting rid of them. This is something that we hear of the Donatists. The Donatists, or Donatism, was a group of people who were Christians, and the Donatists didn't like when there would be priests or people giving up manuscripts when they would get persecuted, when the soldiers would come to them and they would uh, let them know where other priests were, let them know where manuscripts were. And the Donatists begin to say, listen, if you are not holding on to the faith, and you're not willing to be martyred for the things of Christ, you are not a brethren in Christ, and they were excommunicated from the church. And all those members who were part of this church, let's say a priest would give away manuscripts because of the pressure, they would say all those members in that church had to get rebaptized by another priest. That's how, should I say, zealous they felt about those people who would give away manuscripts to be burned to the soldiers of Diocletian's uh, great army. But again, it was here that the Christians avoided this type of atmosphere and said, no, it's not by works. We know that every person has sin in their lives. And if someone repents from what they did, from their sin, just like anyone else, it's by grace you are saved. But this happened during the emperor of the Diocletians. But we find by 306 AD that Constantine the Great becomes the Roman Empire. And it all started back in 285 
AD, as Diocletian would separate four generals, the Tetarchy, of four men to rule over a quarter of land from the Roman Empire. We find in October 28, 312 AD, that Constantine would march onto Rome to meet Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge. And the story goes that as Constantine was getting ready for battle, that he had a vision. And the vision said, in this sign you will conquer. And he saw a vision of a cross. And so he began to put these crosses on all the armor and the shields of the soldiers. And he swore that if he would triumph against the great odds, that he would pledge himself to be a Christian. And sure enough, Constantine Juan became emperor of Rome. And to celebrate this victory, Constantine created the Constantinople on the site of Byzantine. And we see by 313 AD, we get the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan was now established that Christians were to be tolerated decriminalizing the Christian worship and the faith, the soon-to-become-a-Christian state. And we'll talk more about it at 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. But I want to tell you that at the death of Constantine at 337, a lot of people and a lot of historians say that Constantine never got baptized until he was at his deathbed. And that's precarious because we know back then that Christians, as soon as they knew who they believed in as Jesus Christ, as Lord, that they would get baptized. But we find that Constantine never got baptized until he was on his deathbed. And we're told that he always wanted to be baptized at the Jordan, but now he fell ill and he was baptized at his deathbed by Eusebius of Nicomedia. Constantine had ruled for 31 years longer than any emperor since Augustus. That was 337 AD. And by 340 AD, we find that Jerome was born, who was going to ride out the Vulgate that would last for another 1500 years or another millennia, another thousand years of the Vulgate, but we'll talk about that next week. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. Thank you for being part of this, and we'll see you next week. I'd like to introduce myself to you. This is Joe with Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, and what we do is we go out into high schools public high schools, and we ask them the question, what is your world view? You see, we want these students, before they get into college, their first year in college, to intellectually think about arguments of why they live here, how they live here, how they got here, and what are they doing here? What is their purpose here on this earth? I think those are four crucial questions for how we live our lives. How did we get here? What are we doing here? How we ought to live our lives? And where are we going when we die? No matter what's said about those four arguments, this has been the talk for over 
for millennia talking about these questions. And what I do is when I go into these public high schools, it is my job to go in there and let them ask questions of what they believe in and weigh them out and see if they make sense. And I would ask you if you want to be a part of Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics to be able to get me from classroom to classroom, from high school to high school, that you can go to my website and be a partner with us as we move forward. One of the things we like to talk about them is about the three camps of apologetics. As you know, apologetics means that we are to defend our faith. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for what we believe in. And that word answered would mean to give a defense for what we believe in. And so when we go into these high school campuses, our goal is to hit all around United States. And what we talk about is the evidentialist argument, the classical argument, and the presupposition. This gives us three ways in order to come out with an understanding of why you live the world that you live in. You know, every teenage son or daughter no matter if they've been an atheist all their lives or been a Christian or whatever worldview they're in, are asking these hard questions. We live in an era where it's very intellectual. And so we come in as 1530 apologetics and give them these answers. And we talk about worldviews and why worldviews matter and why definitions matter. So if you want to be a part of this, we would love to see you be a partner with us as we take on the world on worldviews. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics with Throughout All Ages, and we'll see you. That's a take, and this has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. You can learn more about your host, Joe Gaona, how to support and get involved with 1530 Apologetics by visiting throughoutallagesministries.com. That's throughoutallagesministries.com. 1530 Apologetics is vigorously setting the pace to give easy answers to hard questions in the culture we live in. So be sure to join Joe at this same time next week for more biblical principles to help you intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, the reality we live in, and history. This has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise.